and kick our event. Just to make sure we are on time. I'm sure all of the listeners that join us um, are eager to hear what you guys have to say. So welcome everyone, speakers and listeners to our Q3 Ernest.js for the trade desk. I know uh, it's been multiple days since they reported, but uh, all been pretty uh, crazy week. A lot of earnings, work and companies and everything else. So I'm glad we have a chance to do this right now. Uh, just to kick off the event, uh, before we dive in into the specifics of um, the trade desk, um, I always like just to maybe spend a few minutes on the industry in general, uh, just the digital ad- advertising space, including uh, connected TV and mobile display and uh, what have you. So maybe, uh, Jordi, if you don't mind, maybe you can just share some of the uh, observations that you see uh, personally uh, what's going on in the digital space if this um, total addressable market is just keep growing what kind of shifts do you see in the industry and uh, how well do you think trade desk is positioned to capitalize on all of these changes that we see yeah i'm happy to to start us off and thanks for tagging me in on this one um, I would say in particular with earnings, as we have all heard, um, IDFA changes to identity and targeting has definitely been a, a big topic amongst uh, public companies, both major leaders in the space, as well as those who are a little bit smaller. Um, other things that are clearly top of mind are the growth of connected television, the importance of international penetration. And I would say the influence of digital commerce. Um, these are just a few of the other ones that are continuing to grow. Um, but I think those are the short-term ones that the companies we all like to invest in and follow are primarily focused on in the near term. When it comes to identity, you'll hear both, as I mentioned, IDFA, which are Apple's changes um, to ATT which is basically an IDFA, again, stands for Identifier for Advertiser, and it's just a targeting node that one utilizes in the iOS ecosystem to track and measure um, digital advertising on audiences in that ecosystem. Um, That is something that's been dramatically impacted for those who are primarily focused in an app ecosystem, specifically in the U.S. As you can imagine, um, the U.S. consumer base is heavily devoted to Apple products. So those companies that are uh, focused significantly in this territory, this region, um, are those that are most impacted by that. Um, Outside of that, there is the growth of connected television, and that is in and of itself a a dense topic as well. Um, I would say that as we are seeing shifts from linear, it's no longer, you know, a trend. It's definitely um, a meaningful shift. And we've already hit critical impact at this point. You're hearing people say we've already hit the tipping point. I think it's quite evident. You now reach more U.S. households on streaming devices than through linear uh, channels. So that's quite impressive in such a short time frame. Uh, yes, the, the COVID pandemic was a major influence of that. And we saw that with a lot of valuations pulled forward and things like that from 2020 through 2021. Um, but it is still very much a early stage channel. Um, we're seeing it even with the trade desk calling out, you know, the expansion of it to even linear, where now we're trying to find more supply and more ways to continue to capitalize on uh, what was the 
dying channel that is addressable linear or sorry, linear by making it addressable, they're able to actually serve digital ads into um, a typically traditional ecosystem. So there is still a lot of evolution to come beyond, um, you know, just the fact that it is now digitally run, but that is something to be cognizant of as well. And then yeah, while you're touching on this, can you please remind our listeners, like, um, do you remember, like, what is the exact uh, um, percentage that CTV accounts for the uh, total pie of the uh, digital advertising market and um, how far maybe it's progressed in the past year? Um, from a dollar standpoint, it was at one point about 71 billion. It then has since then pulled forward where a lot of it's already shifted digitally, where it became 60 from the linear market. Um, I would say that that has continued rapidly. I know we brought this up on a prior call, so sometimes the numbers do escape me. Um, but I would say that we are, um, I can't think of the percentage off the top of my head. I don't want to misspeak. Do you have it off yours, Max? Uh, I remember that I think the total pie was about 200 billion, right? Like the total digital advertising uh, market. And then the linear was about $65 billion and the CTV around 25 from this 20, 65, correct? Yeah, the linear and CTV makes sense. 20 billion is definitely low in my opinion because if you listen to the call and just alone to where digital is moving, Shopper marketing and e-commerce accounts for that in uh, just as itself. So 200 billion is definitely low. Um, I know that the trade desk has what seems like an outrageous TAM for some when they say uh, trillion dollars, but I would say it's actually pretty attainable. And they're even speaking of going to you know five in the years ahead. Obviously, they set their their benchmarks high, but as you've seen them deliver quarter over quarter. Um, demand side retention is super high at a 97%, which is a real statistic. Um, when you think of demand side and supply side, the different customer bases, it's rare for a supply partner to really shift away from one. So retention rates are a little less meaningful, but when you come to the demand side with the fact that advertisers use so many DSPs and have so many options to just activate on, Google owning a DSP, for example, Amazon owning a DSP, another example, um, for the trade desk to have such a strong retention rate, it's actually very, very uh, meaningful, in my opinion. So I would say that that's pretty, um, the, the 200 billion is quite low. Um, and especially as things continue to shift programmatically, it'll just expand further. Um, and then just sorry, back to the last one, you kind of gave me a nice segue here, talking to commerce, I know we're seeing it with uh, social and social commerce, we're seeing it with streaming as connected TV commerce, um, but even just the ability to do so programmatically. But what many people are trying to figure out is that closed loop model, because major retailers in particular, um, as you might know, a um, certain products are sold online. So it's easy for those brands to track sales directly from online ads, but you know, uh, Coca-Cola's and Pepsi's and um, your toilet paper, you know, your, your Procter Gamble's, they don't really have their own websites to track these sales. No one goes to Coca-Cola to buy Coca-Cola. You know, they go to these big retailers, they go to other platforms, they'll go to a Whole Foods and buy their products. So to get that, you know, that metric and close the loop there, that will help shift dollars further to digital. And then again, even further to programmatic. And these are other um, things we're hearing of as well. Uh, there are 
additional tangents too, not just with IDFA with Apple. There's also Google and the change in cookies. Um, there's additional OEMs entering different spaces. People speak of the growth in gaming as well as the potential to do superimposition into metaverse, which we will not get into that. That's all speculation at this point still, but the TAM in, uh, that is digital just has a pretty infinite uh, runway ahead of itself. Yeah, we clearly can see uh, how mature the U.S. market is. So what are the things that you guys observe when it comes to international um, digital ad spend? Uh, which d- direction the trends are moving? Um, I can speak briefly, but I would say that the trends typically follow consumers because the brands themselves, similar to streaming, they want to follow the eyeballs. They want to follow the activity. Um, so, you know, China, uh, in certain regions in the APAC region heavily focus on mobile devices. Um, so mobile advertising is very big in those regions in the U S obviously streaming, we're hearing about it every day. Um, certain regions in Europe, Germany in particular has come up on a few reports where it's just, there's such a shift in growth of viewership there as well in the UK. Um, LATAM's also gaining uh, a little bit slower, but it's still pretty meaningful. And then I would say some emerging markets with consumerism is definitely uh, India as well. So these are regions that a lot of the major players who are looking on growth are definitely focusing their attention on. Uh, any of our speakers have anything else to add when it comes yeah. to the industry trends? Yeah, I can I, I can I can speak a little bit on on international growth and then um, the CTV kind of uh, transformation pertaining to, to trade desk specifically. So Jeff Green kind of tells us every quarter that China remains the fastest growing geography, but um, percentage of sales coming from domestic is not is not declining that rapidly. Um, it's not really declining at all, which kind of points to how much um, low hanging fruit is left for Trade Desk to really take advantage of. And and to me, uh, we'll, we'll talk a lot about Google and we'll talk a lot about Apple, but but the CTV movement really to me that last domino on on the on the shift between cable. And streaming is live sports. Uh, pre-pandemic, 88% of the most watched shows in the United States were live sporting events. And just a couple highlights from Trade Desk during the quarter, they added Turner Sports' NBA package to, to its inventory, and they grew NFL ad impressions by six times. And they added Peacock. They already had Comcast, so that was kind of expected. But Peacock has rights to the NFL, NHL, and the Olympics that are now going to shift from, from cable and bundles to programmatic that that trade desk can target this wildly passionate fan base off of. So, so that to me was kind of the last step in, um, in programmatic really becoming even more inevitable than it already is. And, and that, that, that shift trade desk really seems to be, um, in, in a great place uh, to take advantage of. So, so CTV to me, um, live sports shifting is going to be kind of the paradigm shift and, 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 and how, CTV, which sub, sub, streaming subscriptions are roughly even with cable subscriptions right now. I think that's going to be very different very soon as Viacom and as ESPN Plus and as all these uh, streaming services start adding sports content because we, we all really love sports content. So just a, an interesting note I wanted to add. Yeah, <clears throat> sorry. Um, maybe just adding there, uh, you know, um, about your question uh, internationally. So uh, Jeff Green said that two thirds of uh, total uh, ad budget is outside of the U.S. If you look at where the Trade Desk is right now, I think they had 12% international revenue. So, I mean, that leaves a lot of room for growth. And, and uh, yeah, China has been growing very fast. Um, 
And um, you know, I remember when they when they went into China. I remember that you know it was a trade war then. Um, and uh, Jeff Green said, "Oh, but you know they're so happy we're coming. We're bringing money into the country and not outside of the country." <clears throat> so, and India is is very important as well, of course. It's those two together are you know essentially uh, half of the world population. So, um, yeah, I think there's a, there's a long leeway for uh, for more growth uh, internationally. Uh, that's uh, very important to know. We're we're only you know. In the very, very, very first sitting internationally. Yeah, one thing that uh, uh, particularly stood out to me personally is that uh, I think the percentage of revenues generated in the United States uh, versus internationally this quarter um, in 2021 compared to the prior year were pretty much exactly the same, if I'm not mistaken. It, yeah, it was 13, 13% last year and 12% this year, I think. So it actually went down by 1%, considering the fact that we know that uh, when it comes to international expansion, just trade has been firing on all cylinders and just just constantly uh, either expanding in um, Southeast Asia or India. We know they uh, hired multiple management uh, positions uh, yeah. in India as well. So just the fact that they've been expanding like crazy internationally, but they revenue percentage-wise is still pretty much the same. So it's just a U.S. spend just keep growing exponentially. That was pretty yeah, interesting that's, to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, if we, we could see the internal, you know, numbers, I, I think uh, international, there, there will be marks with four-digit growth. Um, but, of course, they start from a much lower uh, base. So that means that, you know, even if, uh, if the U.S. only only grows by you know 25% or 30% or so you know that that will be you know as a as a total that will be uh you know much more than than that you know for for number digits and and I'm not saying they're growing uh um they're growing that fast everywhere of course internationally but I, I think you know the growth is staggering there and then uh, it it will continue for for a very very long time because you know as I said, it's, it's very early internationally. Yeah, and I think Brad hit the nail on the head with a lot of it being tied to sports. That's like uh, the first domino that will lead to significant growth for certain channels. Um, connected television, absolutely. I mean, I think they called out that while APAC was like the fastest growing region, London in particular, India <coughs> led that area um, doubling. So it's definitely something to call out that I think in those regions, as that content becomes available digitally and then programmatically, the trade desk is very well positioned uh, positioned to lead there. And then to your point, Max, while there is this hyper growth in these smaller regions, and as Chris alluded to, yes, it's definitely at a smaller base, but there is still so much opportunity in the U.S. And as we all know from the open internet, unconflicted uh, side of the coin, Trade Desk is the absolute leader there. So it just bodes well for the current quarter and quarters ahead, in my opinion. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, before we move on to the next segment, App Economy, do you have anything else to add uh, on the industry overall or international growth? Yeah, I think the uh, 
those gentlemen touched on the important points. Uh, I was looking, you know, at the international footprint in terms of just offices. Uh, you look at about four offices in Europe and uh, seven offices in Asia. So clearly the trade desk is well positioned uh, from an organizational standpoint to really uh, be benefiting from the tailwinds they've already used in the U.S. and to expand internationally uh, because also these partners they have, whether it's NBCU uh, that Brad touched on with Peacock entering, those companies also try to uh, push their content internationally. So it's going to make it much easier for them to expand. So that's definitely a tailwind to, to look at for. Um, a funny thing you mentioned, Peacock, Brad, because it's also something that makes me wonder uh, where uh, there were some um, some tailwinds from the Olympics already factored in Q3. So we will touch more on that, I think, later, because it's not clear whether they signed Peacock ahead of the, Olymp the Tokyo Olympics in July or not. And if they did, it's, of course, partially explaining, you know, the the large beat that we've seen in Q3. Uh, but overall, I think those partners that they have in the U.S. as they expand and their offices footprint, I think it's all positioning the company in a uh, in a great way. It's just to kind of tap onto that one. It, when it comes to the Olympics and something that was called out on the call, it's interesting that because of the pandemic and issues with um, supply chain for in for almost all industries, the way in which traditional buying has been done, even digitally in an upfront capacity has been disrupted, I would say permanently, to the point where advertisers can no longer commit to that degree and publishers have to be okay with it. Um, the businesses themselves are hurting or shifting or dealing with more macro issues. And because of that, brands have to remain more agile, they have to be more efficient, and they also can't uh, run on guarantees. And if you've read uh, Brad's work in the past, you know how big of a disruption programmatic is to this upfront model. And the trade desk is benefiting in that regard. And that even comes to the Olympics, which was called out on the call where, you know, you'd assume all these upfronts and big commitments um, will continue to run that way. And for the most part, they likely will for major events in that capacity. But with what has happened and the way in which the trade desk is positioning itself as a partner for these content providers and advertisers trying to access these content providers, it seems like that they understand that those conversations are happening and being disrupted and very aware of that uh, their technology is likely the fix for that problem. So. Yeah, that's all, um, all great points. Uh, Thanks for this edition, Jordan. Um, I think um, one of the other things that um, I liked to discuss right now is um, that probably the biggest update in the company's history, which was Solomar. I think they launched uh, sometime in July, if I'm not mistaken, and it's been operating there already uh, for the past four months. Uh, Do you guys hear anything um, interesting on the earnings call from Jeff Green? Uh, how is the adoption? going and uh, if uh, more and more brands and marketers uh, using the platform, anything else that stood out to you guys when it comes to Solomar in particular? Yeah, well, the, the AI that they use um, to predict the, the, you know, the price at which a, 
uh, a certain slot will you know uh, will sell and um and then their their customers can you know see that price and and you know bid bid under so they don't overpay um i think that's you know that's great for their customers and it's it's uh it's another reason for especially for really big companies to uh, you know to use uh, the trade desk uh because you know those those slots are you know per you know per slot is not that much but if you if you count that um you know over a full year that's that's a you know an enormous amount of money that can be saved um you know by by the customers so um i think that that was a that was a very important uh you know uh, update from uh, solimar yeah, yeah and I'll, yeah. I'll just oh sorry app economy go ahead i i'll go after you um, only to talk to Solomar. Um, so what Chris is speaking to is um, predictive clearing. And why that's important in particular is in a world that is increasingly becoming a first price auction and programmatic. And what that means is in this auction model, similar to a stock you're bidding. Um, and with that, a first price auction you're paying for the exact price that you bid on in those first price auction environments. So you're looking for a high valued impression or thousands of impressions on valued users, and you are competing against your direct brand competitors. And you want to make sure that your campaigns are scaling and you're reaching these um, potential consumers and prospects and, and driving business growth. The problem is that to reach these users, sometimes the market is so competitive that you will bid significantly higher than you might need to. Uh, going back to Coke, for example, if I'm Coke and I think Pepsi's targeting the same users, I might bid, making up a number here, $10 for a display ad, which is quite high, thinking that Pepsi's bidding because maybe I'm not clearing at $7. For all I know, Pepsi stopped bidding 7 and they're bidding 6 but I'm still bidding 10 That is a significantly higher cost that I am now eating um, to make sure that my campaigns deliver. Predictive clearing tells me that for all of these target audiences that I'm trying to engage with, I don't need to pay 10 anymore. So I'm incrementally more efficient with every dollar I put into my campaign. And many people have reached out to me and thinking this is actually a detriment to the trade desk business because now each dollar that goes through their pipes, um, they're, they're potentially, their customers are spending less, but it's not spending less. It's spending less per impression. The budgets are remaining the same, if not inflating, and they continue, as they've even called out, gaining incremental dollars. And the incremental dollars are what prove the value. And that's where you're getting the growth rates on these same consumers. Um, so it's pretty impressive. Um, it's an advancement of what they used to have with COA. And it's something that is going to be increasingly valuable with connected television as well for these same reasons, because as brands are shifting from linear, where they're used to paying on a GRP, um, a gross rating point or a TRP, a target rating point, you're paying by second and impressions are typically in uh, the sub $10 range. You're paying like per second. So you can get an, an $8 slot, a $10 slot, sometimes 16 if it's aggressive, that's quite rare. Um, and connected television, CPMs are as high as $25. So it's a big jump up. Um, part of it is the data costs and the value of understanding who you're targeting and what you're measuring. But again, a brand has to understand and eat those costs. And with this uh, predictive clearing, now they can remain more efficient and drive those results they need to. 
um, at a better rate. So it's just more scale. It's, it's more bang for your buck. It's getting more and doing less. I yeah, know there was, um, I know there was a joke, joke around Max around how many times Jeff Green would say uh, CTV during the call. Uh, so I, I played around and noticed that he said it 16 times. Uh, but here is another word that he said 16 times, Solimar. Uh, so interestingly enough, this, this is definitely where he, he's focused on. And uh, the, the aspect of granularly uh, setting goals for marketers is probably the, the most interesting part uh, because the competition around so many other DSPs of course, the Trade Desk has this huge advantage of addressing the whole internet, right? As opposed to uh, a walled garden, be it you know, Facebook or YouTube for the, the big ones. Uh, but with Solimar, what it seems to, to achieve here is, is this capacity of uh, allowing marketers to bid as close as possible to the winning price without overpaying, as, as Jordi touched on. And uh, I think that everybody's gonna be very pleased with that. If you use a platform, and you're noticing that you get more bang for your buck, basically. Uh, this notion of uh, efficacy, which is for, for brand marketers, that's why really what they are uh, targeting. That's why um, their management is looking for efficacy in the realm of their um, actions. And Solimar is automating a lot of the research uh, to find the right data uh, for every single impression and Basically, what Jeff Green has been pushing on so many times during this call is how pleased customers are with the results. Uh, so that what that tells me is that 95% retention uh, over the past seven years is not going down anytime soon because they are making a breakthrough uh, innovation here in the way they can maximize the returns for advertisers. You know, it will be very interesting yeah, to know uh, why those 5% actually live in the platform and where they're going, uh, thinking they will be able to find a better return on their ad spend. I'm really curious. Yeah, and just, it's a good point, Max. Um, and just kind of hitting on, on Solomar and what I think it means or where, or where I see it going. So Solomar is really about this custom goal setting that app economy um, talked about, but also leveraging first party data to, to really connect impression and, and cost per impression to, to spend data and, and to revenue. So this makes somebody like Walmart, for example, or, or, or Home Depot, or, or these retailers that that trade desk is or that trade desk is starting to work with, it makes them both more immensely more valuable to suppliers by by making them more aware of, of how productive their spend is going to be. And it also makes Walmart a lot more profitable. So Solomar was really the driving force behind Walmart deciding not to internally build um, something or go with a different partner, but to, to pick Trade Desk. They've said a lot of nice things about Trade Desk since then. And, and just another another quote on the call that I, I found kind of eye-opening eye, eye um, was Jeff Green telling us, we are talking to dozens of retailers and, 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 that, and, and, and he told us, and they're the retailers that you'd expect us to be talking to. So kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, um, the, the behemoths of the world that we're hoping and, and expecting them to land. So I, I really think that by by onboarding all of this first party data and, and by making it so that we can actually use all of this data and, and, and quantify impressions and move from impression to sale and to revenue and to, and to actually understand what happened throughout that entire process, it just makes everyone smarter and more informed and the trade desk is really providing that with, with Solomon. Yeah, I think you're calling out um, 
two things in particular here that are super important, not just the nod of approval from some of the biggest leading retailers um, globally and the fact that they are choosing one DSP to build technology off of, not several in testing. I agree, like, that's very much a statement. Um, but also the unique use case in twofold here of Solomar, where you can not only onboard client first party data, which if you think about it in a world that is being impacted by changes to um, targeting on Apple devices, as well as uh, Google run ecosystems due to changes in cookies, your client first party data um, is essential and it's needed to better understand your customers from a, a history standpoint. Once cookies go away, you lose a lot of the modeling on the back end. You lose a lot of historical data. So you now need to um, future-proof your campaigns. So first-party data becomes invaluable. But when it comes to the actual retailers themselves, this is a new TAM and a new flywheel, in my opinion, for the trade desk. Because going back to commerce, there's a reason why a lot of young brands lean right into digital and go to certain channels like programmatic or socials because they can measure the ROI. The problem is that not every brand, even a young direct-to-consumer brand, is built to drive sales directly from their platforms. Um, certain products, maybe it's a beverage, maybe it's a household good, are, are more likely sold on an Amazon or a Walmart. Um, and because of that, they are potentially, or prior, I would say, potentially less likely to run programmatically because of this. If they are now able to track these sales directly through Walmart's owned, you know, more or less ecosystem, walled garden, whatever you want to call it, due to the closed loop metrics, because of the data provided by Walmart through this white label DSP in partnership with the trade desk, you're now bringing on a whole new slew of advertisers into the programmatic ecosystem. And furthermore, you're incentivizing other retailers to create value with their own data and with that, they themselves are going to see increased revenue and business growth and want to continue to do this. And that will incentivize and invite other similar retailers to do so, even to the point where major international players like Gojek have been mentioned already. So when you want to speak of um, international as well, you know, these are very big names. These are pretty powerful partnerships they're creating. And it is uh, a pretty big statement that they're all looking at the trade desk to do this. Yeah, I just want to add there that, um, you know, yesterday, I think um, the trade desk also released, uh, um, you know, a survey, or the results of a survey that showed that in the next 12 months, um, you know, uh, marketers who will, you know, um, use data, uh, sales data, uh, will triple in the next 12 months. So, you know, I think uh, the trade desk is perfectly placed there. And, and you know, it's a, the, in, in the right place at the right time. So, uh, yeah, very, very important. Yeah. Man, we also uh, got that made-in case study that they, they published a couple of days ago where they talked about, like, 20% uh, faster time to impression and 20 or 30% higher conversion. And, and and to me, that that's just, I mean, as many of those as we can get, um, to, the better. Because I, I really feel like it's just going to be a domino effect of, of – of the cooking industry seeing made in and, and how much better they're doing with their ROI on ad impressions and saying, shit, we, we need to do this or we're going to fall behind. And then that just, um, that, that just kind of, kind of rolling to other industries and, and following that same pattern. So, um, Jeff Green, if you're somehow listening to this, which I know you're not, please post more of those case studies. 
<laughs> I mean, you never know. Who knows? Maybe he has multiple accounts on Twitter and he just decides to log in and listens and takes all this into consideration. We'll see. Uh, I guess it wasn't uh, such a bad move uh, to start this process with the largest retail in the world. And now, of course, all of the smaller players all over the world see what Walmart, like I mentioned, the biggest company in the world when it comes to retail, is making this most. All the other brands see the value in this as well. And I personally think that we're going to see more and more examples uh, and uh, partnerships of this nature in the future. But uh, we'll see how it goes. Just wanted to welcome really quick uh, offer. Thank you so much for joining uh, our traders call as well. We're just uh, going over Q3 numbers. So if you have anything to add, just please feel free to chime in. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Max. Hey, Jordy. Hey, guys. <clears throat> just want to say that I think the Walmart um, partnership with the Trade Desk I think Jordy probably said it. I came late and there's no way Jordy didn't say it, but it's all just in case. <laughs> it's all about first-party data. It's always been all about first-party data and Walmart has a spe very special kind of first-party data <clears throat> and they can share that with the trade desk. And also, um, uh, I think there's a possibility if this goes well, that Walmart buys Roku. Wow, that was quite a mic drop. <laughs> uh, well, I just I like think it. about if they's gonna have it seems what Walmart has been moving toward more of a technology company. It started a long time ago with e just e-commerce, which is hardly a technology company anymore. But they're clearly not just sitting back and they're realizing, you know, shit, we do half a trillion dollars in revenue and we're the largest employer in the country and we're the largest shopping destination in the world. And <laughs> maybe we can do something with data. And um, they're also, I mean... Talk about a choke point for other retailers. I mean, holy shit, as they start going into their own technology. <laughs> Amazon has Amazon. They're the mall of the internet. But Walmart's, Walmart's the mall of the world, right? Well, at least the mall of the country. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. Just uh, curious what other speakers think about this um, interesting idea of... Um, Walmart acquiring <laughs> Roku well, at some point. What do you guys think about this? Well, the, the holy grail of uh, advertisement has always been, you know, to measure uh, how much it helps uh, with brand awareness and with sales, of course. And um, you see that, you know, uh, that, that loop was already closed on the internet for the biggest part, um, but not offline. And you see that at this moment, it's changing. This is a you know a pivotal moment in in which the trade desk connects the offline data with the marketing campaigns, and that is extremely important to understand why you know, uh, the company will continue to to grow so fast for years and years. I also want to point out that it's naturally going to be the case then that when Apple um, decides to take the marketing world for itself. Right, sort of says, okay, you guys, you guys build it on us. After you build it on us, we'll just take it and turn you off, which is what they did. Right? It's okay. It's in the name of privacy. Sure, whatever. It's, it's not in the name of privacy. It's in the name of Apple building a larger ad business. Um, that we are in a world now where there are other mega caps. Right? Maybe we don't really think of Walmart as a mega cap, but um, they are. 
and Walmart in combination with the best technology companies in the world. You know, I, I think there's going to be, uh, don't get me wrong, I still think Apple's the most powerful company in the world, but at, at, at some point, some of the more powerful companies that don't just want to complain, like Facebook, they're going to say, you know what, an opening was just created for us by Apple's bad behavior, and we're just going to go and fucking take what they think they're taking. And this is one way to do it. Offline data with the largest retailer in the United States, right? So other companies will benefit too. Others are going to be hurt, of course, but uh, I just, I think Apple's changes to, well, basically removing anyone else saying IDFA uh, and then it using it for itself is not going to be as quiet as some companies thought, certainly Facebook, Snap, right? But it's also going to have reverberations that go far outside, you know, a mobile phone. Um, if Apple's going to disentangle Facebook's chokehold on certain kind of advertising, oh, fuck, here comes everyone else. So here comes everyone else. Yeah, to your point, mentioning mega caps, it's pretty interesting to me that uh, Trade Desk mentioned multiple times here that uh, regardless of all the policies that uh, Google is um, taking into consideration or implementing or, or any of the changes that are being made by Apple in IDFA or any supply chain issues or anything else, it seems like... Uh, Neither one of those things have any impact on trade desk. It's uh, pretty interesting to me. Yeah, I think. Yeah, that goes back. That goes back into all that the first party data treasure chest that we're really talking about, and how how the trade desk can kind of lean on lean on the Home Depots of the world and the WalMarts of the world and the Washington Posts of the world and all of their data and all of their insights and aggregate that into their AI and machine learning model in order in, in order to kind of insulate themselves from large third parties making it more difficult um, to access their ecosystem with all the opt-ins and all, and all this stuff that they're doing. So, so by, by the trade desk, it, being the biggest right now is very advantageous because I talk about this with Jordy a lot. While, while everyone is going to get hurt, the dollars are still going to flow somewhere and trade desk gets hurt relatively less. So the dollars are still going to flow to trade desk. That, that's really how I see it. And it's, and it's just, um, it's a product of, of the admirable base of partners that they've built over the last 10 years. And, and I know I sound kind of like a cheerleader right now. And that's because I really am a cheerleader for, for the trade desk. They've just made it so easy to cheerlead for the last several years. But, but yeah, we, we, we heard the, we heard the no. No, Google is more reliant on us than we are on them. So, I mean, just, just, Great, yeah. It, that, that, I'll leave it there. I think I, th that, I think uh, Google was uh, was uh, censoring you because you fell away. Yeah, I, I caught the, the most of it from what you were saying, Brad. But um, I think what we all lost in in Brad's internet service was the fact that the traders was highlighting that other larger supply partners are starting to have more meaningful value in the programmatic uh, ecosystem and in the value chain to the point where Google was no longer the largest provider uh, of supply. And as one of the, the largest DSPs of the unconflicted independent ecosystem, um, it just proves that changes happening to the programmatic landscape at large are not as meaningful against the trade desk. Um, I think this is built into the way in which they function and inherent in programmatic and I think they're preparing for 
what could be other potential changes with what was announced um, during our last uh, roadshow, more or less, with TD7 and their investment in Chalice. It's algorithms. It is AI. And if their platform is running campaigns for advertisers and this platform is using AI modeling to optimize campaigns in real time based on which supplies adding value to their campaigns, if you can no longer target in Apple ecosystems, the algorithms are going to automatically optimize away from that supply. So then the technology itself innately built into the trade desk value proposition is galvanizing itself in this open internet. Furthermore, with the use of data called out by Ophir and Brad and Chris, App Economy, Max, we, we've all kind of championed this alone, but data, data is the most valuable commodity in a growingly digital world. Um, and that is a case across all industries. And it is something that is very apparent in programmatic advertising for all the reasons we've already discussed and those we have yet to understand. And the fact that being so unconflicted and open and agnostic to other parties enables a trade desk to be extremely interoperable with whatever data values um, the campaigns of its clients using it as a buyer or those leveraging its technology to create white label solutions for themselves. And that's something that Ophir was talking to as well with, you know, Walmart and other players that might be considered trying to grow their own value prop in a growingly, uh, increasingly competitive world. I think that the trade desk stands to really add value outside of what we currently see it doing. I think you can also look to the periphery, right? So we're trying to predict the impact that some of these changes will have on the trade desk, which is an obvious place to look because they're the agnostic third party AI giant, right? So, but if you look away from DSPs and you look away from social media, you say, well, who else is succeeding because of IDFA? Um, like not, not just in spite of it, but because of it, because of the removal of IDFA. Then you can look at the gamers, like look at Unity. Unity is obliterating earnings um, and revenue because of its advertising, mean, in part because of its advertising business. And how can its advertising business be growing when it's um, based almost fully on iPhones? That's because Unity has all of the first party data. And so the owners of first-party data are going to be the winners of this movement of the algorithms away from what is inefficient. And so that's all AI does, right? So that's where I was born and raised is AI. And um, it's not that complicated. Um, like a, a convolutional neural network actually isn't as complicated as it sounds. Even with deep learning, it's just a very involved waiting system, which you could actually write in a enclosed form. And if you write it in close form and you look at it, all it's doing is it's, it's looking for an optimal solution. And if one um, collection of data starts to become, just starts to drive lower signal, so you're on an iPhone and you don't have the benefit of an IDFA, then it just won't put money there. It'll put money somewhere else. Uh, it's, not, it's not complicated and it doesn't require any kind of retribution. It's just an algorithm. And it says, well, I used to get 137,000 things to send this ad. And now of those 137,000 things, 131,000 of those things are no longer available to me. I'm just going to go somewhere else. That's what the algorithm does. And so 
advertising on an iPhone is going to be far less valuable than it used to be, and that doesn't mean the digital dollars are going away. It just means that advertising on an iPhone is just not as valuable as it used to be. <laughs> so it'll go somewhere else. Yeah, and, and one of the things, uh, and then Jeff Green also, uh, you know, called that out explicitly on on the, on the call was, uh, you know, the Gartner, um, you know, Magic Quadrants, um, and uh, you know, the trade desk leading in three of the four uh, yeah, capabilities. So in uh, uh, media planning, uh, campaign results uh, analysis, and um, I forgot the third one, but, you know, that was before Google and before Amazon. I mean, that, that was quite impressive as well. So I think, you know, it's not just that um, uh, the brands have to search for, uh, you know, something else, but they can see that that something else, you know, is, is really as good or maybe in some things better than what was. So that's, that's also very important, I think. I wanted to, to kind of pose a question um, to, to everyone or anyone who wants to answer it. Um, can you guys hear me okay? I know I was having trouble You're before. Clear. You're good. Perfect. So, so we got a quote from Jeff Green, which kind of made me raise my eyebrows saying, walled gardens are now even beginning to adopt encrypted versions of UID2. He did not say which walled gardens. I'm, I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's not Google or Apple, but but just kind of uh, wanted to, to know from you guys, from, from fellow you know, trade desk followers, what you thought of that comment, because I, I, again, found it pretty eyebrow raising. More data, better data, better targeting. It's, it'd be crazy not for someone to take it. Um, some of them don't need it. You know, and Google doesn't need it. But um, why wouldn't Facebook, Facebook take it? Why wouldn't any large platform that used to rely on one thing that is gone not use something else that could be replacing it. But that's that's my impression. And um, I mean, it, it's just, it makes logic, it's logical that some someone that's data hungry and data focused is missing a piece of data. They have to go, they have to find a replacement. Yeah, um, I would agree. I mean, I think it, it's definitely noteworthy that it's being adopted in some capacity with those that would consider them world gardens or want to avoid anything that is shared with the broader ecosystem like um, UID2. And I think they called out that, again, this has to be adopted by both advertisers and publishers. So uh, they didn't speak to in which capacity it was adopted by these other players, nor did they speak to the players. So it's hard to make uh, you know logical assumptions here. Um, but that being said, they also called out and, and reiterated, and I appreciated it because it does get confused at, at times. UID2 is not and no longer um, owned by the trade desk. It has been passed off and shared and run by an organization called uh, Prebid, Prebid.org. And with that, it's even adopted by other DSPs because they see that the broader ecosystem needs a shared ID to function. Um, and it's partly why they've even built into Solomar this ability to leverage multiple different data sources and Solomar to intelligently choose the most effective data source because they know that it likely won't be a single solution as much as it would be easy to have a single solution in the future. Um, so it is interesting. I think there's still a lot to learn about what those adoptions mean and in what capacity. But I think to your point, the fact that it was called out and that it was 
kind of like a wink, wink, nudge, big players here um, is something, uh, you know, of note. If I had to speculate on who that, uh, that might be, I would definitely put my money on Amazon. Uh, maybe because I'm traumatized as a MongoDB uh, shareholder and I've seen Amazon uh, use open source software uh, to their advantage, sometimes ruthlessly. Uh, but uh, uh, overall, as a the trade desk shareholder, I'm very happy with that because what it tells me is also how amazing uh, UID2 is. Just a great open source software should be used by everybody, uh, ultimately, if it's the superior one. And what it says is just how robust the ecosystem and just the number of partners that are joining in to to join in Trace Desk's you know mission driven uh, approach. Uh, I I would see that as a positive and net positive for sure. But yes, uh, Amazon uh, that's where I think the the nudge is. Yeah, I'd have to agree. For oh sorry, no, no, go ahead. No, you go back. Go ahead. Perfect. Yeah, I, I'd have to agree. And, and to me, I, I agree pretty much with all your points. And to me, Trade Desk has this awesome mission and this awesome culture. But but Walled Gardens, if we're being realistic, aren't gonna aren't aren't going to abandon their keep everything in house and, and and control all the data we possibly can for Trade Desk's model unless there's an economic incentive. So to me, this just marks kind of a, a shift in UID two providing a, a better ROI with this philosophy of kind of sharing is caring, I guess I'll go with that term um, in terms of, or, or in contrast to kind of just walling yourselves off being the walled garden and keeping everything for yourself because you think um, that gives you a better ROI advantage. So I, I, I was, I was really happy with it. Um, whichever walled garden it is, I, I think it's a good sign. I'm interested what you guys think about this reality that, I mean, UID2 had to be since it was introduced by Trade Desk, they had to essentially give it up to the whole world if they wanted it to be successful. It's a perfect example of, you know, the one plus one equals three. But as the Trade Desk gets more and more data, let's say with Walmart and other offline entities, substantial offline entities, um, and other people, and UID starts proliferating or it continues to proliferate, there is this sort of a little bit of a secret that nobody really talks about. And I, I know that you guys in, in the ad business know this very well, but we like to talk about on the streaming TV side, the connected TV side, we like to talk about Amazon versus Google versus Roku. But in reality, there's actually a relatively large competition between the trade desk and Roku for getting the dollars that are going to go to Roku. <laughs> um, the trade desk, I mean, if you talk to experts, senior executives, um, I should say senior managers, not senior executives, at either of those firms, if you, you know, if they, they will openly tell you that they're competing with each other, um, and which, you know, not a lot of people talk about because, gosh, when you have Amazon and Google and Facebook in the conversation, then, you know, why would you talk about the Trade Desk and Roku um, negotiating or, or um, competing? But I just wonder what you guys think about that. Like, how does that play out between Roku and the Trade Desk? At first, it looked like, you know, if you're the first party platform, which Roku is, then kind of de facto you win. But if there's UID2 and that proliferates through everyone and not to the walled gardens like Roku, maybe, then how does that impact that um, that battle, that kind of that uh, positioning for greater strength? Well, I, I think that Roku, you know, with its DSP will have to go outside of its platform as well more and more and more 
and and you know that's the only way that they they can win in in uh, you know I think versus the trade fi- uh, the trade desk um, I think that there will always be elements for you know the uh, Roku as well um, but in general I think their DSP has to take the the data that they have outside just just like Facebook did you know. Facebook makes more money probably from outside of its own uh, platform than from on it. And I mean, I think uh, Roku could do the same, um, you know, in the future. Um, and, uh, and and the trade desk, you know, will will and they will they will compete for uh, for every C- CTV dollar. Uh, fortunately, there are a lot of dollars there. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point you bring up. Um, first to clarify, like true connected television, CTV, um, you'll hear some players in the space inaccurately report on CTV and include what is called, um, mobile desktop OTT or like FEP full episode player, but basically logging into a streaming service on a desktop or mobile device. Um, it can be bucketed into OTT as a streaming channel, but as the IAB and other, boards within um, digital advertising have highlighted CTV should be true CTV uh, advertising and content run on a connected television device. Um, to that degree, connected television devices, they are entirely cookieless. So um, they called out that UID could add value when it comes to certain things like frequency capping, which is, you know, again, making sure you don't inundate the same user with the same message and cause, you know, uh, message burnout or message wear out, um, non-specific names. Basically, no one wants to see the same ad 12 times in two hours. Um, it just has a, a, a poor result, a negative affinity from the brand result standpoint. Um, when it comes to competition, I think that they are competing in the same market, but I don't think that they are looking at each other as direct competitors in the same regard. They understand where they are and that, you know, obviously Roku would like to see more managed service dollars running through its 1G DSP. Um, I think their partnerships with Shopify perfectly highlight that where it is on a self-service model, allowing these brands, similar to what we're talking about with Walmart, the shift in commerce, the shift for small um, nimble brands needing to, you know, find a way to rely on programmatics, flexibility and efficiencies and data-driven results in a more um, simplistic capacity. That's what they'll run through there. Um, so th- there are certain instances where, you know, Roku wants more margins, more dollars in-house. It makes sense. But again, I think it's a rising tide situation where Roku is not necessarily a walled garden in the same right where there is a commiseration against Google and Amazon and Facebook um, in the ad world because there has been interesting ways in which they grade their own homework and brands can't avoid YouTube. They can't avoid Instagram and Facebook. They know that their audiences are there, their consumers are there, and it's foolish not to be there. Um, So these changes that are happening in identity are starting to kind of open up the kimono where benchmarks needing to be retested. And as Brad highlighted, you know, from an advertiser standpoint, they finally showed a a really strong case study with UID, um, UID2, sorry. And it was made in. And the numbers, I'm I'm repeating Brad here again, but the 
cost per acquisition, again, the cost to actually drive a purchase of the product for made in 20% more efficient. And the time to which one actually converts and makes this acquisition, uh, you know, KPI, 33% more efficient. And those are pretty big percentages. So I think that that shift in identity is benefiting both of them. And I think even more so, realistically, the trade desk right now, because they are currently more adopted in a true self-service capacity. And as dollars shift away from those giant social platforms due to the changes in IDFA and what will be cookies in the future, um, it is very easy for someone to just kind of, as a self-service model, as a campaign manager, move dollars from from one channel to another if they have uh, insight into both budgets. You know, with Roku and a managed service, it still involves a conversation. It still involves a contract. But you can buy Roku supply through the trade desk. So it could be win-win. And doesn't, don't the DSPs, let's just actually just talk about trade desk. Doesn't the trade desk have to be better, uh, better, so better CPAs um, than, let's say, Roku's one view, just because the trade desk itself has a take rate, right? So I've, I've always been curious about that, and I talked to Jeff Green about this once many, many years ago, and he didn't want to talk about it, but just curious for those of you in it. Doesn't yeah, they it, call, they call this like tech tax, and there are like minute fees that are made on the demand side. There are, there are take rates that are involved on the supply side. Again, it, that's how some of these businesses sustain their business and grow. Um, the tech tax is acknowledged in the space and it is something that you recognize if you're going to use a platform, you're paying some fee in some regard. Um, you know, you understand it costs more sometimes to buy a nice sports car versus, you know, a junker. And with that, you just acknowledge that sometimes you might have to pay a little bit more to turn on some type of data or to get some type of unique reporting, things like that. Um, they are recognized. And these are conversations that happen because what advertisers will say is we want more dollars to work in media, you know, lower our taxes more or less. Um, but if the results speak for themselves and benchmark is, is the benchmark is becoming more efficient, meaning it's moving down and the business is growing due to performance in digital uh, programmatic channels, it, it kind of pays for itself and it justifies itself. Um, and I can imagine Jeff kind of like brushing it off because it's, it's a very, it should be acknowledged and it should be known. And it is a real thing, but like, you know, you need to pay for the service in some capacity, I guess. So isn't there, I've always thought this too, um, isn't there a threat to the best customers for the trade desk? By best, I mean the largest. If they're, um, let's say they're a pretty big scale and then they're starting to go all in on the trade desk and they're getting fantastic results, okay even better and so they, they commit more capital um both intellectual capital and you know financial capital and it starts to work even more and they start to say okay it's starting to work more and then they get these fabulous reports and the reports come back that let's just i'm just making something up let's say that it's really starting to work on actual connected tv and in particular roku because fuck roku owns most of the us um isn't there a risk for the trade desk's biggest customers to sort of graduate to the point where they say, you know what, 
this is working really, really well, and we're spending, you know, um, fifty million dollars a quarter now on connected TV, thirty-five of which is going to Roku. We started out at like, you know, like a million dollars a month. Isn't there a risk that they then say, okay, well, for this portion of our budget, like we're, the trade desk is still our, our guy, but but we want to take the thirty-five million that we're sending to Roku and just go straight to OneView. Is that is is that a risk to Trade Desk that the, the more successful a company gets, that it actually kind of graduates off their platform? That's like, well, I don't want to pay this take rate. I just want to go straight to the, the platform, which I already know is working because of the Trade Desk. Um, I would say in those instances, most often, if it's an advertiser, they will try to find other ways to cut costs because they see the Trade Desk as an inevitable part of the value chain that is their programmatic campaigns. They might in-house things like that to find more efficiencies. When it comes to your example in particular, I would have to say that they would need to pull reporting and see so much particular added value in their impressions running on Roku for it to warrant such a shift. Is it possible? Absolutely. Um, is it a real threat that I think is something that is what people investing in the trade desk should focus on? Right now, I personally don't. Again, this is my opinion. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I also think I also think that you, you know you have to see that um, Roku has got the content and the other players as well. And you know they're not that objectives. They want just you know they have the supply uh, side as well. So they want just to earn as much money uh, as possible from the from the you know. Uh, the content that they have. So they, they have that double position while the trade desk doesn't. And therefore it can be, you know, the, you know, the Switzerland of, uh, of that tech. Yeah. And again, uh, just to add more color to why my reasoning was what it was, it is because a lot of the dollars flow through agencies and agencies, um, not all, not 100% in absolute, but, a significant portion of them run self-service models. And just to clarify for some, a self-service model is one where the agency is the one with employees themselves in the UI, in the platform, running campaigns and setting them up, where a managed service model is one where um, staff employees at Roku or the trade desk use their own technology and run the campaigns on behalf of the clients. So in your example of here, I feel like it would have to be a direct client um, directive where they don't have the manpower, the human capital to run self-service themselves and make that decision because one view to my knowledge is particularly managed service where um, a lot of players in the space buying Roku um, outside of managed service typically use other DSPs and then access its content and impressions through those DSPs in a self-service model. Interesting. Yeah, there's, um, I think it's something that's happening in tech. It's not just ad tech. That um, a, a lot of companies, softwares in particular, which we're all in love with, right, software, um, where their fundamental value proposition is just incredibly um, powerful simplicity, right? And then with simplicity in ad tech, you're talking about simplicity, you're also talking about AI, so efficacy, right? But there are a lot of technologies, some of them that, I bet you I can name 10 companies that at least one of them, everyone on this call owns, that because everything is growing so quickly and becoming so much more efficient that I think some of them 
might start putting themselves out of business. Not out of business, but they might start losing their best customers um, kind of in the same realm. I'm not, not saying that it's a risk for Trade Desk at all. In fact, I'm, I'm wildly bullish on Trade Desk. But I just think it's, it's, it's an interesting paradigm shift, paradigm shift that might be coming over the next decade in a lot of technology. I don't think anyone has given thought to. So, um, well, I actually, actually think that I kind of agree. I mean, I think that that's partly why the Trade Desk is investing in TD7. I... This is now pure speculation, but looking at Chalice and what is custom, um, very advanced modeling, uh, machine learning and AI, I think that they see that eventually bigger brands, maybe for now it's retailers and potentially bigger advertisers themselves, want to truly build something more custom and in-house. Um, similar to what they've done with Walmart, they can absolutely white label their technology. I don't know to the very nuances in which they could have these partnerships could be a SaaS model could be could be uh, a typical fee on impression volume through um, there are many ways in which they can work these out but I do think that you know they see this as a potential long-term opportunity um, that would be a very massive shift though considering where we are today but is it absolutely one that I see at some point in time I can, I can see that being a probability high probability yeah, it's going to be an interesting progression. Anyway, in any case, I'd, I'd bet on Jeff Green every day of the week and twice on Sunday, so I'm all in. Yeah, I was about yeah, to say, so. it doesn't matter what kind of changes the industry is going to over um, undertake. I'm pretty confident that Jeff Green and his team will pivot accordingly and will position the company for future success. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I constantly hear from all the listeners' comments um after our spaces, they're like, we don't spend enough time on uh, some of the bearish arguments of the companies. And uh, I typically gather uh, all of the bulls of the company. So just was curious if you guys have any bearish takes on the company's uh, um, Q3 earnings or on the company's future potential risk. I know we just touched one of the possibilities of clients moving trade risk and going to Roku or anywhere else if you guys do you guys have any other bearish takes on the company any potential risks I think that if you have a really good bullish thesis that you should be able to write the most fantastic bearish note like you know how bearish notes come out and the stock moves down like 11% because retail freaks out and it was just like it was really nothing it was like the wind blew and a leaf fell in someone's pool and someone thought it was an alligator and someone thought the alligator ate the child and it was like no it was just a fucking leaf that fell in the pool um if you're really really bullish on a company and you've really really done your research you should be able to tear that company apart with the bearish thesis because you know exactly what the bullish thesis what, what underpins the bullish thesis and if you pull the rug well then you have a bearish thesis so i'm not going to say anything and i'll let other people fill in the, the blanks for that but i mean i can but i want to hear other people but it's just something to consider for all investors, since there's a lot of people here. Like, you should you should be able to write a profoundly strong bearish thesis, bearish thesis, and the reason it doesn't shake you is because you understand the bullish thesis so well. You say, "Hey, I see these risks. I understand every single one of these risks so well that I could write a better bear report than a hack short seller." Right? And I'll tell you what. This is why I'm still bullish. So that, that, if you can do that, then you understand the company. Yeah, that's think, a very good point. I, pretty much that's exactly what I do if I see the company that I like. Uh, first thing that I'm trying to do to uh, 
bullet all the weaknesses to the company that I'm looking at and also trying to find all the mitigants to these weaknesses in the company as well, positioned to mitigate all these weaknesses in the future. So this is what I personally do. But uh, yeah, Epic Anime, sorry for uh, interrupting you. Yeah, no problem. Uh, yeah, I think I have a couple of things in mind. We we all love Jeff Green and uh, this is uh, he's part of the bull case, I think. So we have a key employee risk here. Uh, as a HubSpot shareholder, you know, for, for those who follow that company, I think we've all seen Brian Halligan, who's one of the most amazing CEOs in, uh, in the U.S. He got a, a moto scooter, uh, a snow scooter accident, I believe. So he got in real trouble for a couple of months. He couldn't work. Uh, but thankfully, you know, he had the management team. I don't know how deep the bench is at the trace desk. Maybe some of you have an opinion, but that would be definitely a, a risk I keep in mind as we watch the company grow and evolve. Uh, so quid of what happens if Jeff Green uh, has an issue. Uh, the other most obvious, I believe, bear case for this company, which uh, is not going to be touched on, on people on this call because we don't focus on valuation much, but I certainly don't. But valuation is is up there, right? The, the company has been trading maybe uh, the high end of the spectrum, 2019, 2020. It had been tw about 20 times sales before, uh, you know, the, the V-shaped recovery of the pandemic. Right now, it's closer to uh, high 30s. So could the trade desk fall 50% and still be perfectly fine in terms of valuation? Yes, that's 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 just a fact. And so when you invest, if you don't invest for the next five plus years, you take the risk at some point to, to just uh, uh, see the stock fall by 50%. That's not necessarily an issue. You know, I tell App Economy portfolio members all the time, we've been through quite a ride because I started investing in 2017 in the trade desk. So for me, it's it was a 2% position. Now it's a 10% position. So not quite my biggest one, but close enough. And when I when I look at it, I, you know, we've been all together, if you were shareholders at the time, through 50% uh, decline during, you know, the Q2 2020 with COVID, you know, freezing ad budgets. That's something that could happen again. Uh, we've seen in 2021, uh, even though it was just news-based, but basically the ATT with iOS 14.5 or Google phasing out third-party cookies, we all knew we could write it out, but you still end up with a stock that is down 50% and it's not fun in the moment, right? So there is, a, it's a volatile stock, right? Uh, and that, that can be a risk if you're not, if it's not a good fit for you as an investor. So something to keep in mind for, for those who don't necessarily have the same time horizon or mindset as the, the speakers today. Yeah, I think valuation is probably the most uh, frequent uh, better seeds that I personally see on feed with and uh, just multiple, multiple, multiple comments. But uh, I think this uh, valuation uh, multiples uh, compress quarter after quarter because the company just keep uh, producing more and more and generating more and more revenues. So it's becoming cheaper. Uh, I don't know, just they just my take. I don't know. I'd also I'd also add the margins here are fantastic. So like thirty eight times sales seems really kind of kind of scary. I, I agree, but that also means well like one hundred and fifteen times earnings, which is not. I mean that's not cheap in any world, but it's definitely not. It's definitely not um, the the, mul the other multiples we see with other companies trading um, around 40, 40 times sales, and it's just because this this company is, is so wildly efficient and so profitable that 
that that that gives me a little bit more comfort but um definitely something to keep an eye on for sure yeah maybe just just oh sorry sorry if you i was going to answer your question so um or uh max's question about the the bear thesis uh, i mean the ad industry itself is of course quite vol- volatile as well we saw that in uh, march 2020 uh, if there would be you know a long-term recession that that would be a risk for the trade desk too although you could also you know argue the opposite of course that uh, advertisers will look for more efficient spending then so it could be eventually uh, even a, a good thing for trade trade desk over the longer term so yeah um these are our bear theses. <laughs> I would say, yeah, I would say uh, Sims and Grayson are phenomenal. And if you ever hear them on the call, um, Jeff will often tag them in because he trusts them and they'll speak um, quite confidently and you can just understand that they know the business. I would say valuation is always a threat. Um, changes in advertising, absolutely. But to Chris's point, I think that it's becoming more apparent that uh, with digital, you can measure more, understand more, and justify ROI. Whereas, you know, uh, typical mailer marketing or what was linear TV, things like that, it's just, you know, it's a lacking real ROI or ROAS, ro- uh, return on ad spend. You just can't always justify it long term at a certain point. I think the biggest bear thesis in my mind when it comes to the trade desk in particular outside of in housing, because a little while ago, prior to being acquired by Comcast, there was this DSP called Beeswax. And Beeswax was DSP as a self-service, where we are going to build a platform for you, build a UI for you, basically a white label solution. It was acquired um, for the fact that it was getting some traction. But ultimately, it's not as simple as just having UI and plugging in. The updates to Solomar themselves kind of prove why you need real professionals and intelligence and expertise and a full team to develop the technology um, in housing is not that simple. Um, in my opinion, though, the biggest one is not that, but it is that the potential for once some form of in housing comes to play, a lot of the power shifts over to the supply side, which we are seeing to some degree with the changes in identity and the changes in tech television, where a lot of the power and the negotiations are no longer just at the technology level. They're with the actual publishers, again, going back to what was early 2000s, where we were in a more network-based model. And there were smaller ecosystems, all with their own supply, all with their own data. Um, you know, As that consolidated to programmatic from what was remnant inventory to full-blown programmatic expertise to then now what is the, the most prevalent in display in online video probably at this time, aside from YouTube, should be maybe conversation shifting entirely to the pubs directly where a lot of the decisioning and the technology and the data gets filtered and applied um, at that point. Um, I don't necessarily see that there yet because of the continued growth and retention of the trade desk. Um, You would still need a DSP likely in any capacity to eventually transact. So I still think that there is value in the programmatic supply chain regardless. Um, And that would be a very dramatic, very dramatic shift in the way in which buying happens. But if I was to put like the earthquake of both VCs, that would potentially be a big shift in advertising. It might be an entire shift of power to the supply side. Yeah, that's it. That's the, that's the, oh my God scenario. It's not that the trade desk, I mean, there's not, the trade desk doesn't go away, but I don't think any of us 
who are stockholders think that if the stock, let's just pretend the stock's at 100, if it goes to 25, but it's not going bankrupt, I don't think that's really helping us. It's just, that's, that's down 75%. <laughs> and if growth rates get cut, you know, by 70%, you know, it goes from a 40% grower to a 12% grower. And this is how it happens, right? What, what you just said, Jordy. And that's the, um, these are the things that you have to be able to identify because if they're happening, then you, you would rather know it when the stock's at 70 than when the stock's at 20. Um, and you would rather know when the stock's at 70 and say to yourself, okay, I wrote this down, that this was possible. That, 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 that if something's going to change, there's always the, the unknown, but you don't have to say it because, as I always like to say, you don't know the unknown is happening until the unknown is happening and you didn't know that the unknown could happen until it happens. So it doesn't matter. But for the things that can be known, it's exactly this. It's this, it's this change in the power structure that um, would be a devastating blow to a company like the Trade Desk. Now, I'm still very long and I have a very long-term perspective and I love Jeff Green and I'm not selling, but I, you have to be able to write that down. What Jordy just said, you have to be able to write that down and know what, what could come because that's exactly what it is. And again, like to that point though, programmatic is constantly expanding. So there are other diverse channels that will create resilience. What they're doing at the Walmart uh, technology and partnership and Gojek and Xiaomi, things like that. Um, they're embedding themselves with their own respective quote unquote supply type partners. So they see this likely, and this is how I perceive these partnerships. They, they see this as long-term value that they could potentially strengthen themselves with and as gaming grows and as digital audio and, and podcasts grow they are entirely agnostic entirely omni-channel and have access to all these formats again it is not just display it's not uh it's not desktop mobile display it's not just desk time uh, sorry desktop or mobile video it is not just connected television it is also digital audio it is also digital out of home so they have resilience and optionality again built in to their business model as much as they have resilience built into the technology. Is this a threat long-term though? Um, one to watch out for. So once we identified this weakness of a potential power shift to supply chain, what, what could be the meeting and what do you think the traders could potentially do kind of like to adjust and pivot to this uh, power shift? If there's anything they could possibly do? Well, they're sort of doing it now. I mean, that's what these partnerships are about. I don't, I mean, these partnerships are about the near term, but they're also about the long term. And that, that is what they can do. But it's sometimes there's a changes to a landscape that's just not, nothing a company can do. So, I mean, a stupid example, but one that's very easy to understand. It's not in the advertising world. Is I mean, what was, what was BlackBerry supposed to do? Right? They could have given up on their sort of absurd view of the world that you know, every phone needs a keyboard but at some point by by iphone 3 it was over anyway so um, and i'm not comparing two companies two different businesses but sometimes there's a change in the landscape and it's just unrecoverable and the best thing you can do as an investor is <laughs> figure it out before you know blackberry and one person who does this phenomenally well he's not speaking here today chris cycle definitely follow him um, he worries and focuses as much as this apocalyptic view on every company he is incredibly bullish on because to Ophir's point, 
you know, a, a need to be more mindful. So, did he cut out for anyone else? I think he did for a yeah. second. And, and the worst part was he was saying, as Ophir said, and he cut out, and that's fucking bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Can you hear me now? Sorry. I think you should yeah, repeat you everything you said, and you should just start with like Ophir. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you are brilliant, man. So the credits definitely do, but. Stop it. If, if you're buying into a company and you don't understand its threats as much as it does its strengths, and yet maybe you don't truly understand its strengths, yeah, I I'll, think that you. Okay. Please. I was no. going to say, it's, I can tell you this in reverse. So I have, um, so I talked to a lot of investors, different types of investors. Right? Okay. So I have short sellers call me, uh, legitimate short, people who. When I say short sellers, I mean people who short for a living. So there's people – so I short sometimes, but I'm not a short seller. I don't make a living shorting stocks. I make a living being long stocks, but then I short once in a while. I'm talking about sometimes short sellers call me. And they have this great fucking story, and they're just going to – they're going to smash a stock. And they'll call me, and they'll say, here it is. And they're going to tell me, and they're going to – it's going to scare me. And they know that they can scare me that it's fucking – it's going to work. And I hear their story, and I know that they haven't. So, if you're short, it's the same thing I said. If you're really, really long, you should be able to write the best bearish thesis ever. If you're really, really short, you should be able to write the best bullish thesis ever. And I can tell they have not done their homework. And so then I just do the opposite. I, I, I take their bearish argument and I just undress them. Right. And by the end of the phone call, sometimes I have them buying the stock. So you should be able to defend your position that well, not to anyone else, not because someone's going to call you on the phone. But because you, the short seller that's going to come and get you is you. Right? And that short seller knocks on your brain from the inside when the stock goes down 25% on earnings. That short seller has just arrived. What are you going to say to them? You better have had that figured out before the stock went down 25%, like the trade desk did earlier this year. Right? You can't answer that short seller then because you're, you're scared. You better have addressed that short seller when the stock was at all-time highs. And that's how you stay in a stock for the right reasons. And you don't buy at the top and sell at the bottom. Because if you just listen to that short seller who's inside your head, they're going to have you buying at the top and selling at the, selling at the bottom. Well, thank you, Ophir. I didn't know I had a short seller in my head, but it's completely true what you say. It's completely true. Uh, he's there. He's there. And he's, and the thing is, he's not that well thought out, so you can prepare for him. <laughs> but he is based in fear, and fear is very, very convincing if it has not been prepared for. I think mine is Carson Block. He's short like half the stocks I own. <laughs> there you go. There's your short seller. Oh, that's good, man. <laughs> That was a comment. That was, uh, well, a, that, was a comment. that was the comment of the night, right there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Brad, you just nailed it, <laughs> as always. Well, if you guys are cool with uh, taking a few questions from the listeners, I have uh, quite a few here for for the next maybe ten, fifteen minutes. I know we went over an hour, so I apologize for these guys. So um, we just uh... can, can I just say something? Um, yeah, before, before we go to the questions, I mean, it's it's completely, it has nothing to do with investing, but 
you know, what a pleasure it is to, to listen to Jeff Green on a, on a conference call. I, I think I, I read, I read 80% of the conference calls, but never those of the trade desk. I mean, he, you know, the intonation. So for, for example, he said, as we predicted the most, uh, recent you know ios uh, ios changes had not had no impact on our business something like that but that as we predicted <laughs> i mean he, he's so you know um and, and and when he talked about google and and you know the the uh antitrust case against google uh something like well that would be positive for us you know it, it's those little things that also, I'll always make it very, you know, uh, fun to listen to the conference call of the trade desk. So if you're a starting investor, you know, those are the ones that you should start with. And it comes from the ability to run a growth company that's actually profitable. I mean, part of that's just he's brilliant and he has a wonderful personality. But a part of it is because he can just kick you in the teeth and tell you, yeah, we've been profitable every single month, every single quarter since we've been public. So not only are we growing quickly, and I'm not saying we have you know two percent EBITDA. No, we have forty percent EBITDA margins. So there a lot of calm comes with that, even when the stock is down twenty five percent off of earnings, like it did earlier in the year. Yeah, one stat that always boggles my mind is the fact that Trade Desk raised seven million dollars before turning before turning profitable. I think that's how they named their VC um, firm with, with the seven in it. But but just. I mean, think about some of the companies uh, we, we have today. I, I mean, I own some of them and just how long it takes and how, how much capital it takes for them to get public. And Trade Desk took $7 million, I think. Uh, just, just and what's wild. funny is, Brad, every single dollar of that $7 million, he probably didn't want to take. He's probably like, I don't know. I think we can turn a profit right now. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Uh, quite a few companies can say the same thing, especially like uh growing at the same speed as Trade Desk does. Um, uh, I just added uh, AJ as a speaker. I don't know why, for some reason, uh, he's not shown on my side as a speaker. Can you guys see him or no? AJ? I don't see him. Yeah, I don't know. It's, no. uh, maybe it's just uh, spaces acting up. I added multiple uh, people who requested uh, to speak as speakers, but for some reason, I just uh, keep getting this error Hmm. It's strange. Um, well, anyway, listeners, if you have any questions, please uh, request to speak, and I'll be more than happy to bring you. And uh, while waiting on some of the requests, uh, any of the um, current speakers have anything else to add? Uh, I think we did a great job for the past, uh, well, not we, just you guys <laughs> did a great job for the past 90 minutes uh, uh, uncovering um trade desk Q3 earnings and the industry overall and talk about risks and trends. Uh, I think listeners uh, got a lot of great information to digest. I can give you a funny story. I can give you a funny story about Jeff Green, personal story if you guys want. Yeah, absolutely. Please do. So it was at CES in, um, oh, fuck me. Um, I'm going to say 2017. I'm not sure. Um, I was not there, and uh, had someone there for our company, for CML, and he came up to Jeff, and he said, hey, Jeff, uh, uh, you know, we'd love to talk to you after you do, he's, gonna, he's doing a little thing, he said, 
love to talk to you afterwards. Or he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which company said it's Capital Market Laboratories? He's like, yeah, yeah. And he, uh, I don't want to say who it was because I don't want to embarrass him. But he said, uh, he's, he could tell that Jeff had no idea what Capital Market Laboratories was. He said, no, it's, uh, it's uh, Ophir Gottlieb's company. And Jeff is such a gentleman. At that time, Jeff had no idea who I was. None. And he just looked at, I'm just going to call the guy John, like John Doe, it wasn't John. He was looking at and I said, oh, fear, I love his work. And he went off and he went to do his presentation and he came back and right afterwards he sat down with us for two hours and he didn't know who the fuck I was at all. That's just what a gentleman he was. I just wanted to share that. <laughs> that was a, a great story. <laughs> uh, wow. What kind of things happening? You never, you never know he could be a subscriber of you. He, he may be now since I talked to his CFO every quarter, but I can promise you guys, he had no idea who I was in 2017. He was just being a, a true, true gentleman. And I think he, he almost, he probably a very good reader of body language. He, he realized that he didn't recognize the company name and maybe took, we'll just call John Doe a little off guard. And he was like, oh, he didn't want to do that. This guy's being very, this guy's being very polite. So when he said my name, he just pretended he knew what that weird sounding name was. And he's just... It's just, it's just, I obviously don't know him personally, personally, you know, professionally, but that was, that's just a, a sign of his character. He's just, he's just a, a good guy. Yeah, definitely one of the best. Um, uh, I saw AJ was a speaker and then all of a sudden he just dropped. Uh, so I don't know, maybe space is just, um, don't want me to add any of the speakers today. I don't is know. You What's Does he going want on? to maybe uh, DM you his question if it's something we can do there? If not, yeah, um, I don't know, Edgy. If you can hear us here, just uh, you can just uh, DM me your question, and um, I will read it out loud and we'll address it. Uh, other than AJ, I don't really have any other requests right now um, at this point. So, like I said, if you guys have anything else uh, to add. Uh, about Tradesk and uh, how excited you are about 2022. I know uh, Jeff uh, Green mentioned multiple times how excited he was about the potential that the next year brings and he never been more excited about the company's future growth as he is right now and going into 2022. He was also talking about something when it comes to the seasonality that typically up to Q4 there is a drop in demand and revenues but this time it could be different did you guys hear anything about this i think i think i i did hear about that and it might be having something to do with just the crazy um quickly changing macro environment that that, that we've been experiencing for over the last couple of years but it, it also is a sign that uh maybe maybe walmart is kicking into high gear a little more maybe home depot is going to go live and launch and um something like that but but i thought I mean, we, we've been talking for an hour and a half, and I think this is just a testament of how deep the conversation got. We haven't even mentioned revenue growth yet or, or for, for Trade Desk or, or Beats or anything like that. We were just literally just talking about probably an encyclopedia of, of what Trade Desk does. So there's just one highlight that, that I would I would mention um, is that this revenue growth rate of 39% this quarter was its highest Q3 revenue growth rate since 2018. Um, so the business, the, the, the business as... Uh, as um, as some people would say, is booming. And um, ex-political spend, it was That's right, I was just going to say that. To, to keep in yeah, mind. Exactly. Um, oh, sorry. Go, no, go I ahead. just wanted to say, you, you were praising it. I just want to say it was actually better. Go ahead. 
Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, the, the, the political spend had, had an 8% um, hit on the revenue growth. So just just really, and I mean, that gets you back to, to 2017 almost when you do ex-political spend there. Um, so, I mean, just, just really a, a testament to how all these things we're talking about are translating into, into really tangible success. Yeah, and I, I read, I read, a, a, sorry, I, I read no. about a, I read about a, a political spending um, for um, twenty twenty two for the intermediate uh, elections, and uh, you know uh, it was expected to triple. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, uh, digital advertising was expected to triple. So I think that will be a huge tailwind again, uh, or a huge, not huge, but it will be a tailwind again. Uh, yeah, no, that, that's what I was going to say. The great, great call, Chris. Um, I say this often when it comes to ad tech, usually it's today's headwinds or tomorrow's tailwinds. And these were pretty tough comps for ad tech as a whole because of the high political spend from the year prior. And the trade desk just, as we can see, dominated. And next year we have midterms. And with the changes to IDFA, um, social platforms are at a weakness and those budgets need to go somewhere. And then they need to go somewhere efficient. And I think the trade desk stands to majorly benefit. And CTV is growing, which is it would have been away from the power power strength of, from the strength of social anyway. So it's just it, I think we should think of the trade desk not in regard to Google and Facebook, but think of the trade desk outside of that. And in that sense, trade desk is the Google. Uh, what kind of trends do you guys see when it comes to mobile advertising? I think that uh, Trade Desk is well positioned when it comes to mobile advertising as well, and it accounts for a pretty large uh, uh, percentage of their entire revenue stream as well. Yeah, well, if you if you see that they they uh, did a partnership with Xiaomi, I mean that's um, the biggest uh, seller of phones in the world. Uh, outside of Apple, um, it's the number one brand in Europe. It's the number one brand in Asia, and the trade desks now starts working with it. I mean, this is big, and and I think it's under uh, you know underestimated because uh, Xiaomi is, is is not in the US, but worldwide this is big. And guess what, Xiaomi just did as well. They're going to get into the CTV OEM space. Oh, interesting. I did not know this. I hadn't heard this. Well. Yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll give a, Blake Grayson updated us on, on, on kind of revenue breakdown between, um, between segments and, and mobile actually fell from a low 40% revenue contribution last quarter to roughly 40%. And then CTV took that share from high 30% um, to roughly 40. So uh, just, just kind of, um, give you an idea of how, how CTV is taking a bigger piece of the pie and mobile is becoming a, a, a still big, but less big piece of the pie. And, and that's where um, trade desk is sort of vulnerable. They haven't been vulnerable yet, clearly from the results, but, but for, from um, decisions from wall gardens and what they're doing, um, that that's, that's the segment that gets affected. So the lower it gets, the more insulated trade desk gets um, and, and it's moving, it's moving lower. So. Yeah, great addition brand. Um, one other thing I wanted to touch really quick before we um, wrap up here. I know it's getting exceptionally late in Europe, so thanks, Chris, so much for uh, staying up late for us. 
just wanted to mention one thing that um, according to one of the researchers by Trade Desk, um, I think I posted a week or two ago that they were saying brands are showing up in metaverse environments through digital advertising as well. And they were quoting Roblox there as one of the brands that um, helps with this type of advertising for various brands. How do you guys uh, see traders being positioned in this segment? And what kind of potential future opportunities you see they're bringing? I personally think that early advertising will be directly done with those partners like Roblox because it might have to be um, items or you know display ads kind of built into the platform um, with it being you know, a virtual reality site as well. It could be if you have a, a logo on a t-shirt, things like that, making up an example. I think the trade desk is well positioned for what will be an evolved version of this where brands can inject their ads, uh, superimpose logos and banners into designated spots once things are a little more flushed out. Um, but I do think that the digital ads currently being attributed to like metaverse players are a little more manually done today. I, I'm not an expert, so I could be wildly off here. Um, I, I just I, I wanted to say maybe some anecdotal evidence that, that we got from Ophir on on Unity Software's ad business being on on fire is. Kind of supports what what you're talking about, Jordan. Yeah, so I'm. I have to say it when I talk about. It. I'm an analyst of record for Unity, but uh, I just spoke to their CFO yesterday for my Q3, and um, their first part. Their their CFO, by the way, super understated. But uh, in Q2, he told me. I said everyone saw IDFA coming. Granted, you know, like Snap and Face. Well, Facebook saw it. Snap didn't really see it as big of a problem as it was. But in Q2, he said. I said, okay, so is IDFA going to hose you? And he said, actually, he said, I know this is going to sound odd and we'll stay prudent on our guidance, but I think IDFA is going to accelerate our business because it's going to leave what's left, right? We've been talking about this the whole time. What's left is just whoever has a better data. And Unity has this huge first-party data, and I think it's going to be pretty difficult right now. I mean, if we're talking about 10 years from now, then the metaverse is going to, you know, we're going to have a $2 trillion ad market, more, $3 trillion ad market. But for now, I think the Robloxes and the Unities, they have a stranglehold on this new market. And um, I think they're just, I, I think both those companies are just like, they, they have pockets and they're ripping their pockets to stretch them for the money that's about to get dumped into them because of what happened with IDFA. And certainly based on last quarter and my conversation yesterday with the CFO of Unity, it's their data. I don't think Trade Desk has a spot in there quite yet. And I think that it's going to grow really really fast keep in mind that for both of those companies they're, they're not facebook right they're not they're not that big right facebook's at a hundred billion dollar ad business or whatever 80 billion um, you know unity has a 400 million dollar ad business so you're going to see huge growth rates but i don't think that it's quite time for the trade desk in there but also the trade desk is looking at larger opportunities and in the long run absolutely i think they'll play yeah, I tend to to agree with here. This is, uh, and I'm an investor in Unity and Roblox. And I think the, if you want to invest in the metaverse and ads in the metaverse, those are much better plays. Uh, the beauty of the Trade Desk is its omni-channel approach, right? And that's that's really also why we are shoulders to begin with. Uh, and so.
He was on a roll. Where'd he go? Yeah, I was about to ask the same thing. Epicondomy, can you hear us? Oh, sorry. I guess my my, my AirPods did something. I don't know. Uh, where was I when I cut off? You just said um, omnichannel. Omnichannel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the fact that the trade desk is omnichannel is part of the reason why we are investors in them and that uh, we are, it's not prime time yet to see them impact the metaverse because uh, we, we are basically too early to see those things evolve so fast and that we're going to see to Jordy's point first things like at the product placement and you see that in movies, right? So entertainment first focuses on product placement. If we reach the point where you get a, you get an impression directly in, your, in the metaverse, this is going to be a very advanced uh, situation where we will have reached the metaverse really uh, that people joke around with where our digital lives are become so much more important than our physical lives. Uh, when that time comes, the trade desk will probably be a player if it's still, you know, the company that we love today and that is relevant in ad tech. But I wouldn't invest in the trade desk because of the metaverse, that's for sure. But you could use it as a long term. So right now, the really the biggest problem for a company like the trade desk, if, if it has any problems, is that the advertising world, especially in the United States, is still dominated by two companies, which are walled gardens. And we're clear. Well, I was going to say clearly, but it feels like we are going away from a stranglehold of those two companies to other things. And CTV is clearly one of those things, which is disrupting everything. But now you start talking about something like the metaverse and you're like, well, there's something else, which is going to be very big. And it's, I know Facebook meta thinks they're going to own it, but I don't think they will. I guess we could argue about that, but uh, the, the more advertising dollars go to places other than walled gardens, the bigger the trade desk gets. And I think the trade desk is the Google of this world. Um, they, they are the mega cap of the programmatic advertising world. And so the bigger that pie gets, just naturally the bigger they get. And if that pie grows a certain amount, the trade desk will outpace the industry's growth, I think. Yeah, well, and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I, I think that, you know, of this world, of this world is also meaningful in that sense that, you know, it's, it's now connecting the dots with, uh, as we have already said, connecting the dots with the offline world world and uh, that's very important uh, to see the same eventually the same you know um, analytics uh, on online and offline and that will you know that will be a huge advantage also since we're talking about the metaverse i just want to say one thing <laughs> um, you know people talk about the singularity which is when ai is smarter than humans and they say well there's a singularity in the metaverse where our digital world our lives are more important than our physical world um, and then, so people think like we're some, we're from here today. We're here, and then some version in the world where our digital lives are more important, and that's a long way away. But uh, I mean, just we have just look at history. These things don't happen all at once, and pieces of our lives start going there. And there are people, perhaps on this call, where their digital lives on Snap, for example, with filters, right, on their photos are actually far more important than their physical world to the point where they may actually be embarrassed to meet people in the real world, given the pictures they've seen of them in the, in the digital world, right? the augmented pictures. So it's, all, it's already happening a little bit, right? It's not, we're not all walking around with headsets or we're, it's not like the matrix, someone plugs us in. It, it, it's a little bit at a time and it's already happening. It's not, it's not that far away where parts of our lives are more important in the digital world, digital world than they are in the physical world. Yeah, and I think that it will also be completely 
different or to a big extent different than what we think it will be right now. I mean, if you look at the internet, um, if, uh, you know, I was an early user in 1995. <laughs> I, I would, you know, it, it took it took 20 or 30 minutes to download a big uh, picture, right? And and um, who would have thought about NFTs, uh, you know? And, and we will see much more of those um, you know, revolutions that we cannot even imagine right now. And, and that will, you know, that will form uh, the metaverse. And, and I think too many people can only think about what is the situation right now and, and can think of the metaverse as uh, with the elements that we already have, but there's so much we don't know yet. So there will be, you know, with the internet as well, you know, the best investments could be done not in 1995, but, you know, in, in 2010 with, with SaaS companies and, and, and social media companies like Facebook and, and Google bid before that. But, you know, I think we will see the same revolution. In 10 years, a lot can change. But, you know, we, we still have to acknowledge that, you know, it, it will be different than we think it will be, or a lot of people think it will be. There are so many unknowns. Yeah, absolutely. I tend to agree with you here. Just wanted to add one more thing that is could be one of great arguments to the valuation bearish thesis on uh, traders as well, that uh, all of these valuation metrics and multiples are based on the past performance of the company, typically. And there are so many opportunities in the future that are not baked in into these estimates as well. So there's just uh, just wanted to add here as well. So just because the company could be over overvalued based on some of the comments that we see today, uh, we just don't know what additional revenue streams will be added to the trade desk, which uh, could potentially compress all of these multiples in the future. Yeah, I mean, you can do something really easy if you think it's overvalued, which it very well may be. I'm not here to defend it. Um, just take out the sell side estimates. I'm not a part of the consensus on truth. So take out the sell side estimates, just, just throw up in the garbage, take their revenue that they guided to for the end of this year, we're, we're you know, two months away from the end of the year, right? And then just give them 50% compounded growth for 2022 and 2023. Say, well, where'd you get that number? Well, they, they, they grew 47% last quarter if you add back political ads and political ads come back 2022, but stronger. Okay, so 50% 2022, 50% 2023, and say 40% 2024. Now tell me if you think they're overvalued. And remember, their EBITDA margins are growing. So I'm not saying that's going to happen. And I'm not saying they're only worth it if they can only do that. But just it's very easy to dissuade yourself of a valuation argument if you just take out sell-side uh, estimates and then just replace them what you, you think might be achievable. Yeah, I was looking at the um, normalized diluted uh, EPS, uh, trailing 12 months this is something you can do in, in the white charts. And the past five years, their normalized diluted EPS is up 8x. Yes. Exactly. And so what if, whatever you assumed a few years ago, it's completely, you know, uh, completely off very fast. So there will be multiple compression because that's how it works, but that you have to factor how fast those things can evolve just driven by the fundamentals, right? Yeah, I mean, take a, I mean, we should probably shouldn't go down the path, but take their uh, enterprise value to earnings. Um, everyone uses non-cap, so enterprise value non-cap earnings. Um, and forget about revenue for a second. Obviously, revenue drives, <laughs> the top line's gonna drive the bottom line, but say, let's stop talking about that, come down the bottom. And let's say they grow, who doesn't want to know their enterprise value to 
non-GAAP EPS. So Non-GAAP EPS is just the EPS they report. Does anyone know their enterprise value to non to, to EPS? So wait, it's a price. It's a price to earnings, right? Enterprise value to earnings, right? Now just imagine that earnings grow seventy percent next year and seventy percent the year after, and tell me if you tell me if you think that valuation that you come up with in a price to earnings ratio is actually that high. And if you do the math, it's actually not that high. And 70% growth is, 70% yeah, growth in earnings is not un unthinkable for the traders. I think it's somewhere around 120 times, but I, I could be wrong by like five or 10 turns in either direction, but I just wanted to put that out yeah, there. Yeah, so take 120, right? Divide up by 1.7 and then divide up by 1.7 again. Right, what's that number? So it's, it, I, I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I, I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, all, all of a sudden you're down to like, uh, 40 times price to earnings at a company growing earnings 70% a year with a total addressable market of a trillion dollars, only at $45 billion, is only like three, uh, $2 billion in revenue. You're like, well, actually, maybe this company isn't that expensive after all. Yeah, no, I always say that, you know, if you look at, at one quarter at a time, you see that, you know, the trade desks beat, you know, maybe 7% on consensus. But if you look at, the future, you know, and, and, and you look back at what the estimates were, uh, you know, uh, before, uh, year, you know, for next year, for example, and the year after that, and then they, they project, you know, four or five years out and more. I mean, if you would look at, if you would take a snapshot now and look in the future, I mean, those numbers will look completely ridiculous because what happens, um, you know, Let's say a company is expected to, you know, to have, and we're not talking about traders, obviously, but they're expected to have 100 million in uh, in, in revenue, and it, you know, next year, and then, um, you know, in the first quarter of next year, it raises that guidance, and the second quarter, it raises that guidance again, and the third quarter, it raises that guidance again, and the, the analysts each time go above that, of course, or you know take that into their estimates and then you see, oh, they, you know, they, they beat the estimates by 5% or so. But if you look at, you know, the start and what it is in the end, there's, you know, there's a huge difference. So those, those earnings compound over time, uh, especially the farther out in the future you go. Okay, let's just do this. Does anyone here you can do with the, the um, emojis? Does anyone here think Amazon is overvalued on a, how about this? Does that, why don't you signal if you think Amazon is fairly valued, fairly valued or undervalued on a price to earnings? You know, it's Amazon. I'm talking about sales. So, Mark, send a little emoji if you're um, if you think Amazon is undervalued or or properly valued on a price to earnings. Does anyone think they're fairly valued? Okay, Brad thinks that. The thing is, with with if you use just AWS, this is this can be the market cap of Amazon if you use the software multiples you see in the market right now. So that, you know, that simplifies the approach. I think, yes. So if the, I'm just, if the trade desk grows earnings, right, their earnings are generally growing faster than their revenue. Um, if earnings grow 60%, okay, which is faster than 47% revenue growth, 39% uh, revenue growth, which would have been 47% with Political ads, political ads are coming back in 2022, political ads are coming back stronger in 2022, not as strong as a potential cycle, blah, 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 you know the number, okay? Let's say they're growing about 
Actually, really quick, I think that they said that it, it's anticipated to be as strong as presidential, if I'm not mistaken. That's what uh, Jeff said on the call. Okay, well, there you go. So 40, let's just say 45% growth and let's say 60% revenue, uh, 60% earnings growth, or seven, let's just say 70% earnings growth. If that happens, the trade desk is cheaper than Amazon on a price-to-earnings ratio. Okay. Again, I'm not trying to make the argument that people should buy trade desk or that it's not expensive. It's expensive. But remember, we're now looking at the company on a price-to-earnings it's less expensive than Amazon if in 2023 it grows earnings. So it hits analyst estimates for, for next year, whatever that is. In 2023, it grows 60%, not revenue, earnings. It's then going to be about, 50, I think it's 58 times earnings, and Amazon is currently 66 times earnings. And I don't think anyone thinks Amazon's numbers are too high, although you could make an argument that they are. But just, again, with the trade desk, we have the great benefit of not having to create a the you know, present value of future free cash flows by using revenue and then guessing what the EBITDA margin is. No, we have, we have earnings. We can just stop, just stop it. We don't, just, we don't have to price it to sales anymore. It can price it to earnings. Anyway, I'll stop talking about value. Yeah, maybe one thing to add to that would be that valuation can only educate your margin of safety, uh, not necessarily the, the potential on the way up. And uh, as someone who invested repeatedly in the trade desk in 2017, 2018, I want to emphasize that it was incredibly scary every single time. Uh, I think there was at one point I bought at 100, 100 uh, PE right, or something like that. And and today it's one of my best performers. It's something like a 20 bagger from the first time I bought. And it was never easy to buy, to hold, it, because it's, that's how it should feel when you invest in a company like this that's going to beat earnings every time by a wide a margin and so it should it should be expected basically and so why is wall street willing to pay so much you may ask and that's the track record right it's this you have so many quarters back to back to back where you see this overperformance where you see management walking the talk right wall street is willing to pay for that when you see growth accelerating after having slowed down, right, like the, the quarter we just had, where we had a growth that was higher than uh, pre-COVID, uh, Wall Street is willing to pay for that, right? We see that in software all over the place. So that's what I would keep in mind when I think about should I add to this position or not? Should I trim? Uh, I, I think it's hard every single time. It should be because that the nature of the beast here is the track record is strong and you have to be willing to pay up for that and you have to have the right mindset for it too because sometimes it's just not a good fit depending on the kind of investor you are yeah that was such a great comment um there's like so much money that were left on the table by multiple investors they were just uh, fearing to invest in this uh quote-unquote overvalued companies although just zooming out and looking at the performance of this stock that they thought was overvalued years from now was just incredible. So you guys know that the analyst sell side estimates for 2024 revenue is 2.6 billion. Does anyone want to guess where it was one year ago? Same year, 2024 revenue, what analysts thought it was going to be at the end of July. So at end of July, 2020, and the trade desk has made no material acquisitions, so this would be organic. Uh, no material acquisitions to revenue. Uh, so does anyone want to know what people thought revenue would be in 2024 for the trade desk right now? I want to know, but but I don't want to guess because I'll be wrong. Okay. So it's 2.6 today. It was 1.6 then. So there's the estimates for that year are 60% higher. 
So uh, just to give you an example. So, um, and, my, and believe me, I, I support my, my sell siders. Um, but we have to price so that the company beats. Otherwise, you know, we get a, well, let's just say that we, we're not going to be favored to ask questions on the next earnings call if our models are outpacing guidance. So it's, it, it's just, just so you know, guys, there's, there's a whole machinery behind this beat and raise thing. Companies simply have to perform. It, it's, it's there. And the trade desk performs, and therefore they will beat and raise every time. Yep, it's pretty much as simple as that. Well, we are right at a two-hour mark right now, so I'm sure um, you guys are probably getting tired of discussing Trade Desk. And uh, just wanted to say no thank way. you so much. <laughs> yeah, um, and everyone is ready to go back to their um, everyday lives. So, really appreciate uh, how generous you guys with your time, and I'm sure a lot of listeners got a lot of great information and great insight. From all of you guys, um, if you have anything else to add uh, as a closing remark, uh, please go ahead. Uh, if no, just uh, thank you so much for your time as always. And uh, I, I personally learned so much from all of you. So thank you guys. Thanks, Max. Thank you, Max. Thank you, everyone. Honestly, thank you. Know, you. Love, love talking with this panel. And, and you're easily the, uh, the best Spaces host that I've ever uh, seen on the spot. So thanks, Max. Uh, you're too kind. Just one thing, I mean, you know, Jeff Green makes it exceptionally easy for all of us uh, because he just talks so much during earnings call that he gives us enough information to digest for the next uh, three months. <laughs> so, thank you guys, and uh, we'll chat with you later. Thank you. Have a good night. Bye. Thank you, Max. Take care. <laughs>